listening to That'll Preach. We have another interview lined up today uh, with our guest, Dr. Gray Sutanto. Dr. Gray Sutanto is the Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and uh, he did his doctoral work under the supervision of James Eglinton at the University of Edinburgh, focusing on the 19th century Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bavink. He's written a couple books about Bavink. Uh, I actually encountered him for the first time down in RTS Orlando at the Padilla Conference. And uh, that's the first time I got introduced to his work. And uh, as someone who's sort of dipping his toe into the world of Bavink, I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show and, and sharing a little bit about this guy and especially about the impact he's had on reformed thinking regarding revelation and how we understand the world that we live in and, and things of that nature. So, Gray, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, Herman Bavink, maybe not, you know, he's not going to be featured in a lot of, you know, pop evangelical, uh, you know, Instagram posts, or I don't know how many Crossway books are going to be about him, but he seems to be a very important figure. Yeah. And uh, just maybe biographically, just talk about how you got interested in Herman Bavink yeah, and yeah. what compelled you about this uh, reformed theologian. Well, I think you'd be surprised, Brian, you know, back in 2021, I think when the James Eglinton, I, I study with him. He's a good friend now um, at the university of Edinburgh. He wrote the critical biography of Herman Bavink for Baker academic and then he wrote a article for Christianity Today called Everybody Loves Bobbing. So I think you'd be surprised how much hmm. pop evangelicalism is starting to get into him, um, not least due to Tim Keller reading Bobbing toward the end of his life. So the last four years, maybe since 2019 of Keller's life, he was reading Bobbing voraciously and then seeing in Bobbing the theological roots of so much of his thinking that was mediated by other American theologians who were reading Bobbing that were influential mm -hmm. for Keller's life. So if you take a look at American reform-ish evangelicalism, who are they influenced by? They were influenced by Tim Keller. Behind Tim Keller, there's people like Ed Clowney, people like Cornelius Van Til, people like Louis Burkhoff. You know, these are names that that people would have heard about in the reform world. There's Gerhardus Voss. And they were all influential um, in, in the American scenes. And they were all reading Herman Bovink. They're all connected to Bovink in some way. So I think people actually have been imbibing a lot of Bavink, but they just didn't know it. Interesting. And so when Bavink was recently translated between 2004 to 2008, his Reform Dogmatics came out as kind of his big four-volume systematic theology. Um, people are starting to realize how much they have been shaped by Bavink without knowing it. And now reading it for the first time in English afresh um, was really captivating to a lot of people. And in Bavink, you see this combination of both what we've called orthodox yet modern impulse. This idea that orthodoxy is not an impediment to engage the modern world, but in a resource, a rich treasure trove of resources to reach, reach the modern world. And then modernity, despite so much of modernism as the world is, is going against Christianity, is still dependent on the Christian faith. Hmm. Um, they're living on borrowed capital. They are um, presupposing much of the Christian faith while attacking the Christian faith at the same time. And this is not just a theological claim. This is also a very rich historical claim that secularism modernity is kind of like a christian heresy so to speak they're attacking christian resources um while still standing on those resources and kind of 
devoiding themselves of Christian theology while still standing on Christian ethics, particularly. So Bobbing really showed that dynamic, that polarity, that, that back and forth between modernity and orthodoxy. And that was really, really engaging for me. And you see that a lot in Keller's preaching and the way in which he he sought to show that there's a point of contact with the modern world through the old Christian faith without having to change the Christian faith. And I think that's always the tendency that we have. We We say, well, Christianity is no longer relevant, so let's tweak it. Let's change it to fit the modern world versus, you know, let's just retreat from the modern world. Let's go back to our enclaves and just repeat what we know. But there is, I think, um, a way beyond that where we can say, well, actually, modernity still stands on the old orthodoxy. And I think that's what Bob Inc. did. And that was really, again, that was attractive to me. And lo and behold, because he was just recently translated, um, I had the opportunity to just write um, on on so many different things in Bob, I, I had free reign. It's still kind of naked territory, right? To to write on something that hasn't been written yet about. So I, I ended up on Bobbing and the theology of revelation, how we know God, um, how how we can have knowledge of God from the world and from Scripture. Um, those sorts of matters for my doctoral studies back then. What do you think is the reason for the resurgence of interest in Bobbing? I mean, I guess you were saying like the the new translations. Um, yeah obviously finding out that some of the people that influenced modern evangelicalism or at least reformed evangelicalism were very influenced yeah, by yeah. him. Yeah. What do you think caused this new interest in his work? Yeah. Um, because I think those authors that we mentioned before, people like Burkhoff, Clowney, um, you know, Harvey Kahn, you know, Westminster Seminary um, in the 20th century types were so influenced by Bovink. Getting to Bovink now, and, and those Westminster Seminary theologians were very influential in reform theology and also in TGC circles today, right? Getting behind them too, Bobby, was, was again, a very captivating reality. And, um, you know, people talk about Christian worldview, for instance. Um, worldview thinking is very, very popular in evangelicalism. Well, where did that come from? Well, it came from Kuiper, sure. But Bobbing wrote a treatise on Christian worldview, which we translated, which was actually more, way more nuanced than Kuiper. People think, for instance, that worldview is just an intellectual, cognitive sort of reality. You attend a worldview seminar, and then you have a Christian worldview, and then you're going to now apply that worldview to your work or something. But Bavink had a, had a perspective of worldview that was way less cognitive and way more lived out, way more collectivist, way more corporate in character. So he talks about how the Christian worldview is something beyond an, a given individual. It's not something that an individual can just appropriate, but an individual can work toward rather than appropriating. And the individual, therefore, requires and needs the whole Catholic Church together, universal together, to get at that Christian worldview. So people are rediscovering that text, uh, which we translated back and came out in 2019 through Crossway. Um, and and people were finding out, oh, this is this is way richer. Uh, this is the, the much more deep Kuyperian tradition. Because Bobbing was a right-hand man to Kuyper. Kuyper was the prime minister. People know about Kuyper a lot. Um, but but he was because he was a politician and because he was writing so many occasional passages and texts, he does tend to conflate. He tends to over exaggerate lots of claims, and people find that he was not as nuanced. And so, Bavink, you have the best of the Kuyperian resources, without the baggage, so to speak, of of Kuyper's over exaggerations and his political claims, things like that. So those are a couple of reasons behind behind our influential theologian was Bavink, behind the recovery of worldview. As, as a more holistic, collective, corporate endeavor. And I think thirdly, um, we are now realizing so much more that we're living in a post-Christian world 
And Boving was writing in the 20th, early 20th century, late 19th century Netherlands, which is in, in many ways anticipated or at least anticipating what post-Christian America would become, right? So what America is now and the debates that we're facing now were very similar to what Boving was facing back in the 19th century because the Netherlands and so much of Europe is a couple steps in advance in terms of secularization, right? And, and I think Boving provides some resources to respond to that. So what do we do when society is losing its cultural Christian moorings? Well, Bavink has some resources for that. What do we do when the people that you meet with no longer presuppose explicitly Christian assumptions? Uh, well, Bavink has resources for that as well, for persuasion and things like that. So he's much more updated in that respect. Maybe tease out a little more. What kind of worldview help does he give to us? Yeah, so... Um, First of all, you know, again, he doesn't boil down the Christian worldview to just a list of, let's say, 10 presuppositions or 10 assumptions on God created the world. You are made in the image of God. Like, okay, those are those are good propositions to believe in. But for him, a Christian worldview. So if you take a look at his text, his 1904 text that we translated to um, English in 2019, um, um, he actually argues that the Christian worldview discusses at least three basic components the three basic components are has to do with being with knowing and with acting with metaphysics epistemology and ethics so the three big subdisciplines of philosophy in other words and he says what makes worldview different than just inquiring into facts or encyclopedic collection of facts is that a worldview tries to trace the unity behind each fact of life so what is a metaphysics? Well, a metaphysics is a theory of being that underlies and unifies all the different fields of life, right? So, for instance, when you take a look at the different fields of, let's say, political theory and history, um, what is the, the underlying metaphysical um, assumption behind these two fields? That's what you're getting at with, your, with regard to worldview. So it's not an immediate reality. It's not an immediate thing that you can get at. Rather, you have to get at the unifying thing by looking at the fields one by one. So it's it's a much more patient endeavor. It's a much more inductive endeavor. He actually argues that worldview building, therefore, starts with sense perception. You start with sense perception. You go with your eyes and your hands, and you go to the libraries. You go to the world, and you have to ask yourself, what unifies everything? And that's why it's not just an individual thing. It's a it's a corporate thing because you have to rely on testimony and other people's inquiries into these different fields. And then the worldview builder needs to, again, trace out the underlying unity between these different fields. And he's saying through this inductive study, what you're going to actually see is that there is going to be a universal assumption on the image of God. Now, when I think when I talk about assumption, I'm not saying everybody explicitly assumes it. Like, I'm not saying assumption in the subjective aspect. I'm talking about assumption in the sense of principle in the objective aspect. Like, I'm not saying that, you know, when politicians or historians are thinking about it, they therefore have in their back of their mind the image of God as they're writing their history of ideas or whatever. But rather, what is what is going to be brought out as you read these works, as you talk to these people, is going to be the objective metaphysical reality of the image of God coming out. Why is it that when you're writing a history book, for instance, you know, um, you're not going to count, let's say you're writing the history book of, of Tallahassee, Florida. You're not going to count the number of trees in Tallahassee, Florida, and then include just a chapter on the many trees in Tallahassee, Florida. Why? 
because you understand that the history is driven by human beings. It's driven by personalities and ideas and social causes and things like that. Why? Because implicitly what's going, what's coming out is the image of God, that it's, it's human wills and human personalities that, that moves history forward. And through the study of history, there's nobody who's objective. You know, you can't study the history of Tallahassee, Florida as a, let's say in the American context, as a Democrat or a Republican without being, without, without saying something about, let's say, voting um, trends or policy trends and whatever else without, without implicitly saying some evaluative things about those things, which means that we have moral notions, moral intuitions about progress and things like that. Well, why is that? Well, we have ideas about providence and, and those sorts of issues. So, so he argues then that when we when we build a worldview, we can't use it triumphalistically. We can't say, "I have a Christian worldview." You don't. How? Right? And then I'm going to chop you off. Um, but rather, he's saying a worldview again. It's it's not something that you can just uncover. It's something that you have to discover. If that makes sense. So, so that's really intriguing to a lot of people because they think worldview is intellectualistic they think worldview is a triumphalistic idea but but again if this is what worldview is then it's an invitation to a corporate endeavor and you require so many different people and um you can't have a christian worldview just by living in america then and you're just reading american stuff you have to have a, a global perspective on what christianity is how does this help us connect with sort of the skeptical world now i mean if you talk about a worldview if you're talking about sort of you know, finding a world, constructing a worldview through sort of your observation of the way things are, or or sort yeah. of just yeah. you know taking all these data points from the sense and then trying to go behind it and go, what is this unifying factor? How does that relate to when we speak to people who, yeah, are again they're 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 going? You know, you were talking about yeah. secularism as like a Christian heresy. How do you bridge that gap with people who are secular with? Right. This- um, what what Bobbing is going to bring out is how naive most people actually are that they actually bring into the table to their sense perception um, underlying um, moral judgments and intuitions that have no coherent worldview behind it, you know, and they, and therefore they don't think of those moral intuitions, intuitions about being about what it means to be human, metaphysical intuitions. They don't they don't think that those are intuitions. They think that they are just facts of the matter, right? They're, they're inconsistent, therefore, about... They're saying, I'm just sticking with the data. I'm just sticking with sense perception. Well, if you're, if you're just sticking with sense perception, then let's pick up, you know, five biographies of the same person. Why, why are the narratives a little bit different, right? He's saying, um, if, you're, if you're just a neutral observer, okay, let's even talk about... Let's pick up five different scientific texts about the climate, Right. And you have differing judgments about what it means to improve human society and what it means to improve the climate and things like that, what it means to improve the environment, right? You you always bring to the table, therefore, teleological, purposeful judgments. You're never just coming in as a neutral observer. So he actually says many times, the scientist is always a person. The scientist is always with a personality because you're made in the image of God. You can't help it but bring all of these judgments, concepts, presuppositions to the table. And now the question is, what grounds those things? So we just translated a book called Christianity and Science by Bobbing, which was his companion volume to his uh, Christian worldview text. They were published in the same year, 1904. And um, we just got this out again with Crossway. So it's a companion volume to Christian worldview from 2019. 
um, just a few months ago. And and here he's arguing that that the idea of neutrality is just a myth. People are always bringing things to the table. And so it's not as if you have neutral science and then Christianity as a private opinion, but there is no such thing as neutral science. Everybody's bringing in their own worldview. Um, but the difference is the Christian worldview can actually unify. Their assumptions are unchecked and fail to unify and, and fail to account for why it is people always bring personal moral evaluations, even as subtle as, as notions of progress and things like that. It looks like I underestimated Crossway. I guess they are publishing a lot of popping things. They are, thanks, yeah. Thanks to your work. Thanks to your work, right? Um, so that's interesting because you know, you're know you saying that there's no neutrality. Everyone's bringing something to the table when they're making moral judgments, evaluative right. judgments on things. But it doesn't mean that they're all equal. And you're saying that the Christian kind of way of putting things together has the most coherence. Right. And the most uh, universality. Yeah. Right, right. And the most able to account for why people have differing judgments universally too. So this is this is another reality that 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 makes sense of it because the Christian doctrine includes the doctrine of sin. Hmm. So so in other words, I think with a scientific worldview, you may have, let's say, a theory of evolution of why people bring judgments to the table. Maybe it's good for survival, things like that, right? Well, there are two Christian responses to that. First, you may have some account of why people therefore bring judgments and 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 so on, but you can't have an account for why people disagree. Why do people have disagreements even about the most basic features of the world, right? And if if you think people don't, just travel, meet people from different places, and you find out that people have different notions about what it means to have a family, what it means to survive even, what is the good of life, and so on. Um even even basic realities about like language that 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 you know form the way in which we view the world, right? So I think I think evolutionary theory not only fails to account for why it is that people disagree, but also fails to account for why that disagreement matters for truth. Because you can argue from an evolutionary perspective that your account of the world perhaps has helped you survive. There are lots of things that help people survive that. It has nothing to do with the truth of the matter, right? If I say, well, believing that the sky is green has helped me survive all these years, that might be true and nice for me, but that has nothing to do with the fact of the matter of what the truth is. So in evolutionary theory, your cognitive faculties were driven for survival, but not necessarily for truth. Um, and, and so with the Christian perspective, you're not only giving an account for the fact that there is truth, your cognitive faculties were wired for truth, but at the same time, there's going to be disagreement, radical disagreement. Why? Because of sin, infinitude, and things like that. So you, you not only have to give an account for the, the possibility of attaining truth, which is already an achievement in itself, but a coherent framework for why it is that people disagree. Wow. I never thought of it that way. We, uh, on, on, the, on the flip side, giving an accounting for those differing judgments, how you yeah. can provide an, even an underpinning for that. Yeah. Um, how do we understand this in terms of, you know, a lot of times people talk about, general revelation yeah this is special revelation so it seems like you're speaking about there's a way in which god reveals himself the image of god reveals itself through metaphysics and you know ethics and all these types of things mm -hmm. uh but that seems like a how do how do we relate that to special revelation scripture uh right the incarnation these types of things and how does bobbing right. work that yeah, this is this is a rich topic. Um, if, if people want to 
dive more into these issues. There's there's lots of different books we could suggest maybe later on. But um, our starting point for Bavink and Kuiper is that for them, when we talk about general revelation, the idea that God has revealed himself to every single creature, for them, this is primarily about the way in which human beings will, in some way, feel intuitively that God exists. Um, feel intuitively that there is moral order in the world, feel intuitively that they have wronged God, even if they've never propositionalized it. So, so they, they make a distinction, therefore, between affect and reason. And general revelation has to do with affect. So they actually argue, you know, Kuiper has this interesting passage about Adam. Adam would not have needed revelation of the Ten Commandments um, in the sense of being encoded in stone tablets in a written form in front of Adam. Adam wouldn't have needed uh, Psalm 19, you know, the idea that the heavens have declared the glory of God and, you know, um, um, his voice goes out through all the world and making, you know, everybody exposed to its heat. Why? Because Adam would have just had intuitive knowing, you know, so he, Kuiper talks about how Adam before the fall is kind of like the genius in a sense, you know, when you talk to a genius, Kuiper says, he doesn't know how he got to his conclusions. He just got there. He feels it. Right. Um, in the same way, Adam just feels it. Um, and therefore, without without explicitly saying that there is the Ten Commandments, he knows he's not going to kill Eve. He knows he's not going to, you know, bow down to a creature because he's not supposed to and so on. Now, after the fall, we continue to feel that feeling, but we suppress it. And so we never profess, this is Romans 1 stuff, right? We never profess what we feel inside, if that makes sense. Hmm. So we feel that God exists. But because we know as well, we feel that we've wronged him, we always suppress that feeling by professing something else about God. So we'll say, ah, maybe God doesn't exist. Why? Because we're trying to get off the hook. So this idea of general revelation is much more rich, much more effective, much more um, intuitive, and much more holistic with regard to the human person as well and what God is doing in creation. Because oftentimes people say, well, surely God hasn't revealed himself to everyone because there's so many atheists, Right. But Kyber and Bobbing say, no, he has. It's just that we don't want to believe that God exists. We feel it. We feel the pressure. And so we try to get off the hook. You know, it's like my daughter comes in and she knows she's done something wrong. And I was like, you know what you did? And no, I don't. You know, it's that kind of thing that, that's that's happening. Now, she might have never propositionalized what she did wrong, but she feels it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Even as a, as a two-year-old, um, she knows it. And so special revelation comes in um, because we suppress the truth. And so um, we need revelation like the Ten Commandments written down. It's not that we don't know what the Ten Commandments were, they would argue, but rather it's because it's to make us even more without excuse, if that makes sense. It's like, like you knew it. And you know what? I know you're not going to admit it, so I'm going to write it down. So Boving says, we gotta, God, God in his grace repeats what we should have intuitively felt in, in special revelation. And not only that, special revelation is redemptive. General revelation is not. General revelation exposes you to your guilt. Special revelation gives you redemption. You know, the escape from that guilt, the the substitution for that guilt, ultimately in incarnation and in scripture, right? Um, and so that's the basic relation between the two. It's a great way of putting it. It really helps us see sort of the corrective aspect of scripture, that it's trying to reorient us back to those intuitions that I guess we would have had pre-fall or at least pushing us toward a sense of, you know, rightly ordering ourselves and our lives. Right. Um, so when Bavik is, is, is thinking through this um, and he's looking at special revelation, um, 
what does he view scripture as? I mean, I think today we, when people talk about scripture, it's like inerrant, infallible, inspired, authoritative. Right. Right. You know, are those categories that he trafficked in or are those more modern absolutely. categories? How, how yeah. does he think through the, the nature of what scripture is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, scripture, he says, is, I mean, he, first of all, he says special revelation is broader than scripture, but scripture is the capstone of special revelation. So, you know, mm. there are many words that God said to Adam in the garden, but we don't have any record of. John says in John 20 that there's lots of things that Jesus did and said that couldn't make it into the book because then there's not enough books that could contain what he did and said, right? So special revelation is broader than scripture, but scripture is the capstone and the record of special revelation, which is itself, therefore, God's authorized record of special revelation, which is the very means by which God continues to speak to his people today. So um, that's that's what we might call perhaps the the um, the redemptive historical shape of scripture, right? Because God's redemptive purposes are completed, scripture now records those redemptive purposes and it's sufficient for us. There's a sufficiency of scripture there. It is therefore authoritative because it is the very word of God. It's self-authenticating because it's the very word of God. It's inspired by God through a diversity of human authors. And Bavink is probably with Kuiper, you know, responsible for where we get the term organic inspiration. This idea that God does not mechanically dictate or put his authors into a trance and then bypass their agency when God writes the books of the Old and New Testaments. But God inspires them organically such that God uses the personalities, styles, language, context of each of these authors to convey exactly what he wants them to convey. So that's the first idea of organic inspiration. Um, the idea that these authors were used and their, their psychologies, their their histories were used by God organically without bypassing them. The second idea behind organic inspiration or, or about organic inspiration is that scripture is itself an organism with a center and there's a unity and diversity. We see that already with the unity of God's authorship with the diversity of human authors, kind of like when I, when I talk about our organism, therefore, you know, like a, like a living thing, right? You've got your heart, you've got your hands, you've got your feet and so on. And yet it's one, one being one thing. And he says, because there's, scripture is an organism there is a center and then there's peripheries you know every part of scripture is inspired but not every part of scripture is as important so even jesus himself summarizes the old testament love your love uh your lord god and love your neighbor as yourself paul talks about things of first importance jesus christ died and rose again according to the scriptures for our sins first corinthians 15 you know so first corinthians 15 you can say is therefore more central to the text than hmm. something like, um, I don't know, uh, pick up some random Levitical law, right? I mean, I'm not saying the book of Leviticus is, is less important, but you know what I mean. Um, so that's the idea of center and periphery. And so he says, if we've got some questions about the periphery, that's okay, because the central parts are clear. And so this, this has to do with the clarity of scripture as well, which is a old reformed notion. It doesn't mean that every part of scripture is equally clear. Even Peter says, you know, some parts of Paul are difficult to understand. So, you know, if you've got some questions about how did all the animals fit in Noah's Ark? You know, maybe that's a valid question, but but that shouldn't override the central parts of scripture, which, which help you ground your conscience and confidence. The third aspect of organic inspiration is that it mirrors the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Christ is divine and human. And in the same way, therefore, scripture is divine and human. Um, 
all the humanities of these authors are brought in to the table, right? And so in that sense, scripture could be seen as contextual. Scripture could be seen in light of historical background. You can you can actually look at literary historical criticism and so on. But scripture is also divine. And so just as Christ is sinless and weak, so is scripture sinless in the sense of inerrant, therefore, and infallible. God cannot be wrong. But when you say that the scriptures cannot be wrong, you're not going to impose um, the idea of a modern scientific textbook on it because it's an ancient text. It's still an ancient text. You got to take a look at maybe, you know, Moses used sources from the ancient Near East to write his text as a polemic against him. That's not going to take away from inspiration. So we have a very different view of inspiration than, say, the Quran or uh, Islamic views. And, and so maybe I'll stop there. Let's, let's read a lot to go on. And that's really helpful. That hypostatic union analogy is good. I, I remember actually reading Peter Enns years ago, and he kind of uses right. it. To, to sort of an opposite effect to argue right. errors, which, which presupposes the sinfulness of Christ. Exactly. And, and I, exactly. I, it just occurred to me, I'm like, well, that doesn't really work. It, it actually, no. if Christ is truly man, but he's also sinless. Then you can absolutely, a, a truly and Bobbing is very clear. Bobbing is very clear about that. Yeah. Scripture is inerrant just as Christ is sinless. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, did you have more that you wanted to keep going on after? Well, I, I think another thing to to mention along the idea of the modern scientific textbook idea, Boving is, is polemical against that because scripture, therefore, presents the truth more like a painting. This is more Kuiper too, uh, they say, more like a painting than a photograph, right? So um, you're not going to get like mechanical detail, but you're going to get a representation of truth. And it's an inerrant presentation of truth, but but you're not going to get the sort of modern idea of like fixity and literalness because scripture is not a modern text. Scripture is an ancient text. You got to treat it as such. There's a human element to it. But again, God can inspire in such a way where it, it communicates exactly what, what God wants it to communicate. It's really helpful. Yeah. Can you help us understand what are some of the challenges that Bob Inc. is facing in the academic world with regarding the authority and the veracity of scripture? What is he dealing with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he's dealing with so many things that we were continually dealing with today. You know, he, in, he engaged with, for instance, um, objections to miracles, which is really, you know, people people talk about the historicity of the Bible, things like that. Really behind those kinds of questions are an assumption that miracles just don't happen. So if, if scriptures record the miracle, then definitely, facto scriptures cannot be true right um and so he dealt with those sorts of objections because he wrote again after the enlightenment where um scriptures are subjugated over you know we sorry scriptures are subordinated under reason and by reason they mean like enlightenment modernist 19th century 18th century rationalist reason from the western perspective uh, which is not shared by the world, but they thought that this was universal reason. So every time people tell me, you know, well, scripture goes against reason. My objection to that immediately is whose reason, mm -hmm. right? There's no such thing as universal reason because everybody's rational intuitions differ from one another's. So um, it, it's a much weaker objection than people think. But anyway, so Bobbing was writing against those sorts of assumptions about whether miracles happen. Um, scriptures are biased right and therefore they're not to be trustworthy and so he's going to show well everybody's going to be bringing into prejudices in some way 
um, scripture is is cannot have been written by God because God cannot intervene in human history. Sort of deistic assumptions, things like that. You know, so all kinds of those sorts of objections were dealt with. What are some ways that He can equip us today to respond to that skepticism? You know, you were talking about the elevation of this particular kind of reasoning, this enlightened yeah. reasoning, which probably still pervades us today. What are some antidotes that he gives us? Yeah. Challenging those assumptions. Yeah. Remember that Boving was writing from the Netherlands, which is right next door from German liberalism, right? And so that and that same form of German liberalism is is going to be influential in the Netherlands as well. So Dutch liberalism and German liberalism have a lot of similar features. So I think a couple of, of responses. First, it's that he exposes people to the fact that this idea that reason has critiqued scripture is a contextualized reason. So you're you're you never have universal reason critiquing scripture because at the end of the day, scripture will accord with reason as in capital R, the logos, right? Um, but but human reason is finite, it's sinful, it's contextualized. And so you never have just scripture going against reason, it's just scripture going against a particular community's reason. And that's okay. Who cares about the community at the end of the day? So he deflates reason's elevation and reason's claim to be autonomous and divine-like, really, over scripture. And he's very attuned to how reason is situational in that respect. And he deflates a lot of that. Um, second, um, he's got some wonderful passages about scripture as self-authenticating. And therefore, if reason is contextualized, you actually need a norming norm behind reason. So he's very good in showing that when we say the scripture is our authority, um, it is our final authority. And so by definition, it's going to be a self-authenticating, norming norm kind of authority. It's a principium in the older Latin sense of the term. It's, our, it's that behind which you cannot go. So he says, this sounds like circular reasoning, uh, where you say, well, scripture is my authority because scripture is my final authority. But it's not circular reasoning because at the level of foundational authorities, you have to reason in that self-authenticating way. So for instance, he says, you know, if you're a rationalist, you're going to say, well, reason is my final authority. How do you know reason is your final authority? And then they say, well, because sense perception tells me so. Then reason wasn't your final authority. That means sense perception is. You've, you've gone to some external thing to justify reason, if that makes sense, right? Um, no, actually, he says the most the most consistent rationalists would say, well, reason is the final norm. Why? Because, well, where else can we go? Reason is. Just use it, right? Obviously, it, it, it validates itself for you. And again, that's not going to be a sufficient answer for Bobbing because he's going to ask whose reason. Hmm. Um, so you're saying your reasoning is a self-authenticating norm over that guy's reasoning. And so you just have a shouting match. I'm boiling down a lot of moves here. I mean, he, he does this in, in so many different works in like glimmers and pieces. But that's really his, his, his argument that if you say that your reasoning is self-authenticating, then it's going to be a shouting match between you and the other guy because your reasons, your reasonings are going to be quite different from one another. Does that make sense? Um, the the so, hard thing with, oh, yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah, the hard go thing ahead. with that is, because I've heard that and, but in order to say that scripture is self-authenticating, you have to use reason. And so ultimately it's, you you know, you're, you're using reason to come to that conclusion that it's self-authenticating. It seems like yeah. reason is still the thing underneath it. Well, reason as an instrument versus reason as a self-authenticating norm, right? So that when scriptures teach you things like Trinity, mm -hmm. 
um, you're not going to say, well, I can't understand it. Therefore, I'm going to get rid of it. Does right. that make sense? So you got to you got to distinguish see. between reason as a temporal starting point right. and reason as a final authority. So when the deists and the Enlightenment rational theists were writing in their day, what are the three doctrines that they immediately got rid of from Christian faith to make religion within the bounds of reason for Immanuel Kant? The three doctrines that they always got rid of were Trinity, Incarnation, and Predestination. Hmm. Consistently, right across the table. Because why? You have paradoxes and contradictions and things like that. So when we say the scriptures are final norm, uh, we say, well, it accords with reason. But reason is not the final authority. Reason, it goes above reason, but it doesn't go against reason. Now, when I mean it goes above reason, it means right reason in the sense of God has created a moral order. And the reason why we have disagreements now and our rational intuitions are so different is because of sin, right? Noetic effects of sin. Um, so it actually, ultimately, it does make more sense that I would submit my intellectual capacities to an infinite God. That accords with reason. But the rationalist move is if my reasoning is the final authority, then there's, if, if there's something I can't comprehend, then by definition, it's not true. Hmm. So there's a nuance there, right? It's, it's, it corresponds with reason, but it still goes above reason to say that I believe in the Trinity. How does Bavink incorporate the idea of tradition into that with the history of the church and, 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 and sort of talk about rule of faith or how, how we just... Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the idea of sola scriptura as our final authority, um, and by the way, you can, you can read all this about circular reasoning and things like that involving uh, prolegomena. He's got a lot of passages about that against Roman Catholicism, actually. Hmm. Um, and um, you can read more about that too in Christian worldview. I mean, he says that first principles cannot be demonstrated, but have to be believed in by definition. Um, so, so it's a very classical idea that he boils down from Aristotle that, that with regard to a first principle, you can't use something else outside of first principle to justify first principle, because by definition, a first principle is justified per itself, right? So this idea of first principle of scripture as a norming norm does not invalidate normed norms. Um, and, and Bavink would believe with much of the reformed Catholic tradition that the spirit, therefore, is the very person that authors the scriptures and the spirit illumines the church throughout church history. And so if the Roman Catholic position has this idea of papal succession, we have an idea of doctrinal succession, that there's a, there's a lineage of doctrine that has been carefully in continuity with one another, but also carefully developed by the Reformed Protestant tradition that, that really draws so much from Augustine, right? Um, and we would say, if your doctrine cannot be traced throughout church history in some way, then it's probably going to be a novel doctrine, then it's probably going to be a wrong doctrine, right? Because God has not left himself without a witness in the church. And so you better have a doctrinal succession idea. So, you know, even as a Protestant, right, it was an evangelical Protestant, not a Reformed Protestant. You actually know this by heart. I mean, you might think you're a biblicist, no creed but the Bible, but that itself is a creed. <laughs> Right, no creed, but the Bible is a creed. But secondly, you believe your pastor, um, your your pastor is a normed norm. Now, creeds and confessions, therefore, are historically tried and tested normed norms of Scripture, and we should only critique them with a very sober-minded, humble position. And we we shouldn't therefore assume that they are guilty until proven innocent, but rather they're innocent until 
church history has proven them guilty. And, and, and that doesn't just happen over an individual, right? And so we take exceptions, for instance, in the Westminster Confession of Faith as Presbyterians, like we can say something like, well, I, I believe in the whole, but not against like um, it, it, the central core. But, but, but I, I can take an exception, for instance, on the Sabbath. The older confession also talks about, you know, the Pope as the Antichrist. A lot of people mm-hmm. take exceptions to that, right? So there are some contextual things perhaps that I can I can take exception to, but I'm not going to take exception to its statements on the Trinity or predestination because that's been tried and tested, we would argue. So over and against a, a Catholic position, which would almost seem like making tradition and um, magisterium as that, that would essentially be the norming norm. Yeah. That norms all norms. It sounds it's like such a... Uh, no, uh, I know that, that's actually the line that I use in class is that um, scripture is the norming norm that norms are all norms. You know, if you ask, what's say, how do you know that a meter long ruler is a meter long ruler? You can compare, but at the end of the day, you need the very first self-defining meter long ruler. When you point to that ruler, the very first one, you say, this is a meter long because it is by right. definition, a meter long ruler. You don't compare it to something else, but other rulers are compared to this one, right? And for the Roman Catholic, Boving has a great line in the Reformed Dogmatics. I'm pretty sure this is volume one, where he says, the Catholics are always going to say we're reasoning in a circle, saying scripture is the final authority. But the Catholics are reasoning in a broader and more vicious circle because they're going to say, well, um, they're going to ask us, how do you know scripture is the final authority? Well, we say, well, scripture is the final authority. And then if you ask them, how do you know scripture is final authority? Well, by means of the church. But then you can ask them the question, well, how does the church have the authority to adjudicate on the scriptures? Well, from the scriptures, you got that from like, you know, Jesus says on this rock, I'll build and It's a particular interpretation of that but to Peter. You know, your, your name is Peter on this rock. I'll build my church. For instance, well, one among many passages that it could appeal to. And basically Bobbing's idea is so you're using the church to justify the canon, but you've appealed to the Bible to justify the church. <laughs> so, you know, you've got a more vicious circle. And then he says, you know, if the Roman Catholic therefore wants to say, well, no, no, that's not what we do at first. We do at first is just, we look at the Bible temporally without knowing yet whether it's a final authority. And then we come to it and realize it's our final authority. And then we go to the church and vice versa. Well, Protestants could say the same thing. Right. You know, initially, they just got to read it yet. They got to discover, again, temporal process versus order of authority. Right. Um, Then Protestants can say the same thing. So, um, you you got a bigger circle than we do, so yeah, that's so a big that, problem. It's a helpful thing, the temporal process rather than order of authority, because it's like every one of us we can't help but approach things first through our reason, right? Or and through your personality, your intuitions, your judgments, right. right? And so that's our first point of contact. Yeah, but it is not the defining factor when something goes beyond our reason. Right. We don't chuck it because we go right. my reason is subservient to this greater truth, although. The only way I can approach it is through, so so the the secondary kind of uh, authority is the primary way you get to right exactly and it's like it's like it's like mining right you're you're going through a mine you got your little pickaxe you're you're yeah chipping away of course you got to use a pickaxe and then you you hit a wall and then you can either say ah this is a bad cave or you're gonna say you know maybe I should go with nature here and just move move on you know what I mean there's yeah. there. Yeah, you can make, you can make several judgments with that, or you can say maybe my pickaxe isn't good enough, hmm. and I got to get a bigger tool. Right? There's so many right. different ways to go about it, but you got to start out with the pickaxe. Let's say it's right. the same with reason. You're going to go to the Bible, and you're going to be offended at some point, 
Right. You no. Know? Uh, and what do you do when you get offended? That's the question. Right. That's when you know which authority you're going to follow with. Um, and, and in the modern world in, in the West, it's like, oh, this is sound, this sounds good. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. And then, you know, suddenly Jesus says something about divorce, let's say, um, that divorce is evil. Or, you know, um, you read Paul, Romans 1, about homosexuality. What do you do at that point? Mm-hmm. That's that's the question that that discloses the order of authority. Wow. Um, you you mentioned a little bit in in your book on Bob Inc. and his ideas of revelation about uh, he, he did some work on religious experience. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious about what that means. What do we is are you talking about a mystical type of thing? What what is the role of the sub the subjectivity of right. the Christian? Well, um. This is a great question, and it's 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 going to open a whole host of, of other issues. But basically, in the 19th century, um, people did not want to ground the authority of God on revelation. They wanted to ground it on religious experience, which they think was more inclusive, right? Um, so it's not revelation; it's it's religious experience that grounds your religion. And Boving says, "Well, okay." Um, that's again, I'm going to simplify a lot of moves here. But basically, he says, if you if you get rid of revelation, then by definition, religious experiences are delusional, basically. Like religious experience presupposes that they are responding to something. Right. So again, what authenticates one religious experience over another is actually revelation. You can't actually determine or else it's just like conflicting accounts of religious experience with no unifying element of how to adjudicate the truth of the matter. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is that um, um, if you take a look at religious experience without the ideas of the Christian faith, let's say like the soul, image of God, general revelation, then you you end up having to um, account for it by an appeal to something else. Like what 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 gives rise to religious experiences if it's not a revelation from a personal God and you're made in the image of God? Well, he says, when you do that and you see people having spiritual experiences and you can't appeal to the Christian faith, you're going to end up smuggling in and returning to notions of occultism, he argues, because you're just going to have undefinable forces causing people to have these experiences and they're not personal. So what are they? And can you... Can you capture those experiences? Can you um, make those experiences be more positive rather than negative? Maybe you can by enchantments, magical rites, and things like that. So he actually predicts the more and more the idea of a personal triune God disappears, the more and more people are going to go back to animism, occultism, spiritism. So that's the basic idea. Yeah. Well, I think you 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 see a little bit of that. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Is he, is he so? It, what would he think about, you know, a Muslim having a religious experience or something? Would he say that um, that that's a genuine experience, but maybe misunderstood? Would he say that that's great? I mean, great question. I think he would probably say something like, um, "This is why religious experience cannot be the ground and the means by which you interpret a particular religion. You need revelation at the end of the day. And given what Christian revelation says, a Muslim's religious experience would be a misinterpretation of general revelation." usually um because god is revealing himself in every person and you're going to experience god in some way but how will you interpret that experience right um so for instance you know um 
you see this even in the Asian world, God gives rain to the just and the unjust. Hmm. And and a lot of the, the polytheists of Paul's day would be like, you know, Poseidon has given us rain today. You know, right. I, 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 you know, I pray to Poseidon, he gave us rain the next day. That's a religious experience of some sense, you know. I went to the temple of Poseidon and there was rain the next day, let's say. Right. So that's a misinterpretation of general revelation. In the same way, you can say, you know, with the Muslims' religious experience, something like, I feel so much guilt and I went to the mosque and I prayed, you know, more than five times a day that day, let's say. I don't know, I'm, I'm giving some sort of basic scenario. Yeah. And they'll say, well, I feel a lot better afterwards. Allah has, has responded to my prayer. You see what I mean? And where does that sense of guilt come from? Again, it'll be general revelation because general revelation says you are guilty, right? Mm. Yeah. But they're, but they're, they're, um, they have that innate sense of that general revelation, but without special right. revelation or assenting to it, they don't no, have yeah. the correct understanding of it. Right, right. So do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? I would say metaphysically, yes, because there's no other God out there. They're responding to this God, but epistemologically, no. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of this stuff, I mean, I'm fascinated by how Bavink has such a philosophical mind. And, yeah. you know, I, um, I, I, I always talk with my podcast co-host, Paul. He's a philosopher. And he always tells me, he's like, you know, back in the day, all these pastors, they were all philosophically trained. You had to know philosophy yeah. before you could know theology. And uh, what what was his? He's a philosopher, as in he's a professor of philosophy. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, is this yeah. Paul Gould? No, Paul Rizcala. Okay, never mind. He was right. at Hillsdale. Now he's at Baylor. Um, cool. But anyway, but he's always kind of you know we kind of go. He always kind of ribbed me a little bit, but being like you know all these theology books are written and they don't have any philosophical grounding. But right, I think mean, seems very philosophical grounded. Was what very. was his philosophical background? Like how did he develop this? Well, kind of I think background? again. Even back in those days, Bavink's gymnasium training, as you call it in the Netherlands, they required all of the basic languages, including Latin, and he took Arabic growing up as well, things like that, and and training in philosophy as well, the history of philosophy, things like that. Um, and I think back then, therefore, when you're going to take something like the MDiv, you already have some of that philosophical background and knowledge when you're when you're getting into theology proper. And I think we do need to retreat that today. I'm very thankful at RTS. I get to teach a class called Christian Thought and Philosophy, and that's a core training class. And I go through, in broad strokes, the history of Western philosophy, some of the main moves, some of the main figures there. I can't cover everyone in one class, obviously, but showing how Christianity engaged with Plato and Aristotle and showing how figures like Alvin Plantinga, who's an analytic philosopher, drew from the Christian tradition and so on, to just show them how helpful philosophy is and how actually... Paul uses it. He reasons well. He cites philosophers and so on. Um, and Augustine as well, and engagement with Plato and things like that. Um, so yeah, I'm very grateful for my own degree in philosophy. So I, I took a double major in undergrad in philosophy and biblical studies. And so when I read this stuff, I, I definitely still draw from my philosophical training. Seems to be a little bit of hesitation with philosophy, though, at least maybe in modern circles. Even in sort of the presuppositional apologetics world, there's a kind of aversion to taking uh, it, it almost seems like philosophy is too much man-centered thinking yeah that, i don't know who you mean in that presuppositional world uh, i try to avoid 21st century presuppositionalists for the most part because first of all i'm not sure that they represent van till rightly and and secondly i think they need to get behind van till to his sources 
Mm. Um, so I'm not even sure that you should be reading Van Til first if you want to get into the right form of this, but you should be reading Kuiper and Bavink and before them, someone like Augustine. And then you're going to get behind the terms of, of you know, classical versus presuppositionalists and see actually the, the, the reform tradition is way more nuanced and gets behind and beyond these sorts of binaries usually. And even saying that, you know, philosophy is man-centered, we want to be God-centered, is itself a philosophy? I mean, depending on how you define philosophy. Philosophy is not necessarily a rationalist philosophy. You can have a theological philosophy, right? Um, so yeah, that's my brief response to that. Well, this is really fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you sharing this. Maybe one, you know, final question of um, where do you think you've seen the most development in Bavink's thought? Where do you think there's a place where, man, he's really matured? And that's something fascinating when you see Augustine not necessarily change his mind, but he begins to become more well-defined. Where do you see that in, in Bavink's work? Yeah, um, his reform dogmatics is a wonderful magnum opus, but it was actually written relatively earlier on in his career. He started writing, I think, 1895, first edition came out between, therefore, 1898 to 1902, something like that. Again, I could be wrong on these details, but but it's actually sort of mid-earlier-ish career. And he actually continued to revise it. And then his second edition came out in 1911. And that's what we have here today. So you can already see even, even what we have here today. He's constantly revising and updating his material. And what he revised on was actually on incorporating more psychology, psychology of religion, and the the idea of religious studies and responding to that. And so if you want to get his 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 immediate more more mature distillation of ideas, I would encourage you to pick up Wonderful Works of God, 1908, 1909, um, where he's summarizing the reform dogmatics in a more uh, less less footnoted, more direct sort of fashion, where you get his mature statements on, on particular issues. And I think he just always saw that that dogmatics needed to become more and more, I mean, he actually says at one point, more and more psychologically attuned, more and more psychological in philosophy of revelation, which came out in 1908, which means that he just says, we need to show how, it doesn't mean that psychology is first, theology is second, but it means that you have to show how theology makes a difference. It's not just beliefs that you hold on to, but there is actually an empirical significance to these beliefs. And it makes a difference in people's lives. And I think he was very concerned about that. And that's why you see his later career books focus on issues like worldview, science, psychology, philosophy of revelation, right? Because he's trying to show, you know, in the Kuyperian tradition, how theology matters for all of life. So you will see that horizontalization of theology to other areas of life in his later career. And I think we should follow that example. You got to go up and you got to go imminent as well, both the directions. It's very well said, and a great summation, probably, of his life's work and what he was what he was aiming toward. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your labor and your work and your thinking in this area. I think it's uh, going to be a really helpful thing and a helpful resource for a lot of people listening. And uh, appreciate you being on the show with us. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. If you guys are interested in finding more of uh, Doctor Sutanto's work, we're going to put some links to his written works. Uh, on the show notes, you can go check that out, find out his stuff on Bavink, as well as reading Bavink himself and, and really being enriched by his great mind. Again, we thank you so much for joining us and for listening in. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach Podcast. Uh, you can send us a DM if you want some more information and if you want to uh, maybe even ask some questions that we could ask on the show or get some interviews 
uh, going on the show that you'd be interested in hearing about. Also, we have our new website up, that'llpreach.io. Make sure you check that out and uh, share that with your friends. Get all the updates about our podcast there. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll see you guys next week.